know what you're thinking. Swing's preaching, so <laughs> you never know what to expect. How many were here when we did the, uh, the, the sermon in the round? Y'all remember that? Y'all complained because none of the seats were the same and you couldn't sit in your own seats. Listen, if you're watching via live stream this morning, thank you for being here. Today's going to be a little bit different. So if you're watching at home, I want to try, you need to try the best you can to put things aside and for the moment, let's just focus. So Andy Stanley writes this message. He says this. He says, we don't drift in good directions. We discipline and prioritize ourselves there. I don't know about you, but during these last four or five months, I would like to think that as we had more time to ourselves, that we had more time and we took more time to get closer to our Lord and Savior, right? What I have found is almost the exact opposite. There are several men that uh, I am in touch with on a regular basis, and, and I ask those men about the spiritual content in their lives during this COVID-19 experience that we've been going through. I didn't know what to expect, but it was interesting because I knew what I was feeling in my heart is that because we weren't meeting, because we weren't gathering together, because we didn't have life groups, because we didn't have the time to come and worship, and by the way, you can look around, and because we have to do this social distancing thing, we don't have the numbers of people who can come and worship. And I begin to ask myself, am I one of those who drift along the way? And I'm a pastor, right? I got all the time in the world. And I begin to examine my heart, and the men that I talked to, nine out of ten of those told me, and these were men that I trust, and these are men who have a walk with Jesus, and nine out of ten of them said that during this time, there's been too much distraction in their life. Too much distraction in their life and the spiritual content of their life has gotten smaller and not larger. So I don't know about you, but if you're anything like the men and if you're anything like me, we have a tendency when we drift, we don't drift in good directions, we drift in the wrong direction. So today, we're going to flip the service. Today, what I want us to do is hit the reset button. You know, on your computer, when it doesn't work, what do you do? You reboot the thing, right? I think as Christians, we need to reset ourselves in life. And we probably ought to do this regularly in our life. We need to take some time and hit that reboot uh, button in our lives and say, okay, where am I in my walk with Christ Am I growing closer to him or am I drawing further away? So I'm going to preach and there's a bet in the back saying that I can't do this in 20, 25 minutes, okay? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to try. Because what we want to do is at the end of this service, and if you're at home watching, what we want to do is stop the noise in our lives and just get before a holy God who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and spend some time with Jesus. So the last half of our service 
It's like one long, big invitation. We're going to worship our Lord and Savior. If you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And as you go there, I'm reminded when I was a student pastor, and I was a student pastor for about 15 years, the most enjoyable week of the year for me as a student pastor was summer camp week. I loved it because we always saw life change take place in teenagers' lives. I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of teenagers, their lives would change during that experience at summer camp. I used to wonder why. Why was it that on a Wednesday night we wouldn't see the kind of things we saw at a summer camp? Why was it that on a Sunday morning we didn't see the kind of things that took place that we saw at a summer camp? And then it dawned on me that for a solid week, now this is back in the day when we did camp starting on Sunday and we'd go through Friday and come back Saturday. But for a solid week, I could take teenagers out of their environments, out of their dysfunctional homes, out of the craziness of their friendships that they had, and I could separate them from this world for a week, and all we did All we did was turn our focus on the person of Christ. And I don't know why, but I was always in awe of the teenagers' lives that were changed during that week. And I shouldn't have been. Because anytime you get before a holy God and you read his word and you listen to his word and you worship this holy name of Jesus, your lives are going to be changed, right? They should be changed. And that's what we found. Lives were changed when we could separate ourselves from the environment. We could separate ourselves from all the noise that was taking place and just focus on who Jesus is. John chapter 2. Let me read starting in verse 18. And what we see here in John chapter 2 is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John, the author One of the disciples, he writes from a distinct perspective. Throughout his entire book, it's really about the deity of Jesus. He's he's showing that Jesus is truly God. And we see that in in verse 1. And actually, we're going to read chapter 1, verse 1 here in a little bit as we start worship. But Jesus comes to chapter 2, and he just had finished the first of his many miracles, his, his first public miracle of the turning the water into wine at a wedding And he makes his way to Jerusalem. He's going there because of the Passover. And he's going there really to do one thing at the Passover, being obedient. And that was to go there and to worship. So he comes into the temple courts. And this is what we read starting in verse 13 of John chapter 2. It says, the Jewish Passover was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, 
zeal for your house will consume me. An old Psalm chapter 69 verse that's quoted many times in the New Testament. Verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? For overturning the, the money changer tables? For telling people to leave? What sign? So the Jesus answered in verse 19, destroy this, temp, this temple, speaking of himself, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his own body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Here's Jesus, and he's at the very beginning of his ministry. Now, many times we read the account of Jesus turning over the money changer tables and, and raising a little bit of havoc there in the temple courts, and we think about what took place at the end of his life. During his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and right before he died, he did the same thing. This was the first time he did it. These outer courts that Jesus entered into in the temple were designed for the Gentiles to come and worship. They were designed for them to come and pray and to worship. And what Jesus found there was something completely different. Jesus had come expecting to come to worship and to pray. And what he found was... Chaos. He found noise. In fact, it became almost impossible to worship. So here's the two things that Jesus was expecting to experience when he came to Jerusalem that day. The first thing was genuine worship. It's your only option. See, in verses 13 through 16 that we just read, Jesus wasn't accusing them of cheating, although Many theologians feel like they were taking advantage of the people. He accused them of turning a place of worship into something that it shouldn't be. See, the religious leaders, they got it all wrong. If you read commentary about this passage of Scripture, you'll see that the ones who were selling the sacrificial animals and stuff, it was the religious leaders, it was the priests. It was those who knew better about what the temple should be. Jesus was angry. The religious leaders got it wrong. They turned the purpose of that Passover, they turned the purpose of coming to the temple into an event. Genuine worship, our only option, it takes anticipation. It's about your purpose. See, the marketplace that the priest and the, the religious leaders had turned the outside of the temple, right there, the outside of that, into, it got in the way of the purpose. Jesus was upset because what he found isn't what he anticipated. The temple was to be a place of worship and of prayer and of sacrifice and of forgiveness and of hope and obedience and acceptance, of victory and of celebration. But that's not what he found. I remember as a young teenager, my God, little G, Right, my my God, little G that I worshipped all the time was this game called basketball. And up in Indiana, 
in Frankfort, Indiana, where we were living, there was this outdoor courts that we would always go to and play. And literally hundreds of people would come and watch pickup games out at the Frankfort Park. I never forget, with anticipation, I would go out to the court because I was expecting something. And usually as I crested the hill at Frankfort Park, as I crested the hill, usually what I always saw in the evening was the lights on and people gathering and games were being played. I couldn't wait to get there because I was preparing myself to come play. I'll never forget this one time. I crested the hill and I was just coming in the middle of the afternoon. It was in the summertime. I was just coming to play. And I saw a bunch of our Frankfurt High School cheerleaders out there practicing. And I was like, this is not a place to come practice cheerleading. <laughs> and I literally got out of my car and went up to the court and said, what are you doing? As if it was some sacrilegious place, right? What are you doing? And they looked at me and said, well, you know, it's, it's asphalt, and it rained earlier, and so the grass was wet, and it was flat. And they thought, well, this would be a good place. I said, no, it's not a good place. That's not what this place is designed for. It was designed to play basketball. See, I'd gone there anticipating something, and what I saw was something that it was not supposed to be. It was the same with Jesus. There had to be an anticipation. When we think about genuine worship, which we're going to do in a minute, there has to be this, this anticipation, and it's about the purpose of why we're coming. I wonder if we turn coming to church into an event or a purpose. Yeah, I thought about that this morning. You know, as the, the religious leaders turn the event of Pas Passover I mean, the, the purpose of Passover and coming to the temple to worship into an event. I wonder if sometimes as, as church-going folks that we don't do the same thing. We don't get up early enough in the morning to have this little quiet time with Jesus. Say, Jesus, you speak to me today. Whoever's preaching, you speak to me. We don't get up enough time to get the kids really ready and now we're pushed and, 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 and things are rushing and we're throwing people in a car and we're rushing to church and we get in and we take our kids wherever they got to go and we rush into the worship center and then we go, okay, Jesus, speak to me. I wonder if we have anticipation when we really come to church. So worship is about anticipation. It's also about passion and, and passion is all about action in our life. Jesus was passionate about the temple. It was his father's house. John quotes Psalm 69, 9, when he says, zeal for your house will consume me. See, Jesus didn't think. This was great. Jesus didn't think. He acted. He didn't ask for advice. He didn't seek permission. He didn't care about his safety. He didn't care about what others would have say. He was defending his father's house. Isn't that cool? He was defending his father's house. Jesus' passion was tied to his action. I wrote this down. Your action will always reflect your passion. Your action will always reflect your passion. Amen? Or oh my, either one. So listen, genuine worship, it's about anticipation. It's about passion. And listen, thirdly, it's about being responsive. It's about emotion within our life. 
You know, here's a great thing about John who wrote this. Jesus six times in the New Testament, six times referred to John as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, wouldn't it be cool for Jesus to say that about you and I? That Rick is one of my disciples that I love. Why? I think it's because John was always responding to the passion that fueled him from within. He would go where he needed to go, he would do what he needed to do, and he would die glorifying his Lord. It's about emotion in your life. If you don't worship with emotion, you need to check what's on the inside. Because we're worshiping a Savior who died on the cross for my sin so that I could have everlasting life. That is worth shouting about, y'all. And in a moment, when we get a chance to worship, these altars are completely open. In fact, I told the worship team in rehearsal Thursday, if God is speaking to you and you need to drop the mic and come to the front and pray, that's what you do. Because worshiping our Lord is about emotion within our life of what he's done for you and for me. And sometimes we forget. That's why the psalmist says, restore the joy of my salvation. I've never been to Augusta to hear the roars that take place in Amen Corner during the Masters. Never been there like that. I went to a practice round and it wasn't the same. But I can imagine when we get to heaven, there's going to be this holy roar when we worship and seeing Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. There'll be this roar. John 17 verse 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So we have to have genuine worship. Jesus was expecting that when he got there to the temple, there would be genuine worship taking place. He also expected this, that that worship would be intentional. That they would worship the one and the only true God, right? Now, the truth is, we worship a lot of gods with a little g. That's what we do. Football season comes along and we worship. Little g's. I get a promotion in my job and I'm worshiping that, that, that more money I get. We get a boat. <laughs> I'm going to meddling now. You get a boat and you're going fishing, you can't wait. Sometimes we begin to worship that little G, that boat. When we come to worship, and we worship in a minute, there has to be this intentional part of what we do. And it's that focus. It's the one true God. That's the intentionality. Verse 18, it says, so the Druze replied to him, what sign will you show us for making a mess? For doing these things, Jesus, what sign are you going to show us? What authority do you have? To do this. And Jesus responded, and he immediately turns the focus from the temple to himself, our one true God. Jesus answered, he said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. Listen, why do you think that when Moses 
was given the Ten Commandments that the first two commandments had to do with worship. <laughs> to get it right. 20% of the commandments had to do with worship. Commandment number one, Exodus 20. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. Commandment number two, do not make an idol for yourself. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The first two commandments had to do with worship and focus. It has to be intentional within our life. I love these scripture passages, and, and you can go read them for your own later on. But Psalm 95, 6 proclaims, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. First Chronicles 16, verse 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Hebrews 12, author writes, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Intentional worship, the one true God. I think there's two conditions for intentional worship, and we're going to be done, and we're going to worship. First condition is you must believe. you got to make it real in your life. Do you or do you not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And before you answer yes, before you answer yes, we live, we live in the deep south, right? And I can ask that to 100 people, 90, 90, 90% of them are going to say, yeah, I've got a relationship with Jesus. And I say, why? Well, because I go to church. Or, or yeah, in our home, you know, we've always known Jesus. Before you say yes to that, check your spirit and say, what's inside? What kind of fruit do I bear within my life? You must believe, John 9, verses 35 through 38, there's a blind man who Jesus asked, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man responded in verse 38, I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. You must believe that he is the resurrected Savior. You must believe that he has forgiven you. You must believe that he loves you and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You know, there's a wonderful story. If you just turn in your Bible, John chapter 4, just turn over to John chapter 4. It's this wonderful story of Jesus traveling with his disciples, and he comes and he's thirsty, and he, he comes to a part of the land, and, it, and it's where the Samaritans are living. And the Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't get along. In fact, you didn't talk to each other. And here is Jesus. He comes to this well, and this woman comes to the well. And Jesus begins to reveal himself of who he is to this woman who had a storied past, a difficult past, one that she probably embraced along the way. And then Jesus revealed to her everything about herself, the woman at the well. I think it's interesting that here's Jesus in verse 13. He said, 
Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. He shares this with this woman, and this woman says, I want that in my life. I need that in my life. And then Jesus says, this is in verse 23 of chapter 4. He says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, with the heart, with the emotion, and with your head, with the mind. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I think this is great. So here's Jesus to this woman. He looks right at her and he says, I, I am he. I am that Messiah. He says, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. See, there was so much noise in her life. Broken marriages. Living in sin, probably absolutely disrespected within her own community because of her life. And yet Jesus said, you believe in me, I'll give you a water that you'll never thirst again. It's everlasting life. There has to be this intentionality that you must believe and you also must prioritize your life. When it comes to intentional worship, what's most important? Ask yourself that. Luke 12, verse 34 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek first God. If we would just redeem a little bit of our time, just redeem it, just a little bit of our time, and give it to the Lord Holy and solely, I believe in my heart, it'd be just like going to camp. I believe that with all my heart. That there's no way that you can stay in front of a holy God with the holy scriptures and worship him and your life not be changed. I've got an exercise. Is that my phone down there? Chad, bring me my phone. How many of y'all have an iPhone? Okay, get out your iPhones. Though you have Androids, this is an exercise for you, but I'm not quite sure where to find it on an Android. All right, get out your iPhones and see where it says settings. Hit the settings button. Everybody there? You at home, you do the same thing. Now go to screen time. It's got a little hourglass, just go down there. Now, Sunday starts a new week. But you can literally take your thumb and oh, where it says daily average and move it to the, the week before that. I think you can. Yeah, if you go to see activity and then it'll pop up, it'll say how many minutes you're spending average per day and then go backwards, net last week. Now, I'm not going to say what Jackson over here, Wallace, told me, but it was an awful lot of hours, wasn't it, Jackson? Yes. Probably shouldn't have said your name, Jackson. Now everybody will know. My average consumption last week, my average consumption per day was two hours and 30 minutes. That's what it says. I'm not lying, okay? 
two hours and 30 minutes. Now, that includes everything. It includes my time on the phone, calling somebody. So there's a productivity, it says there. It tells you how many hours you're spending on social networking and then other. Let me ask you a question. I don't know what yours says, but I would venture to say it's more than four hours a day. What would happen if we just redeemed a little bit of that time and said, it's yours, Jesus. It's yours. I didn't say that to make you feel guilty. I said that because I opened this whole sermon up with a quote from Andy Stanley. And that quote was very simple. It says, we do not drift in good directions. We don't. We don't drift in good directions. He says, we discipline and prioritize ourselves to get there. Y'all, let's hit the reset button, amen? Let's reboot, amen? Let's take some time and say, Jesus, you're more important than all the noise that's going along in my life. You're more important than it. The good and the bad noise, you're more important. But let me tell you, you have to prioritize that time in your life. Nobody else is going to do it for you. You have to do that. Amen.